Good morning, Harvest Church. My, uh, it's my joy and my honor to uh, worship with you this morning. And we're going to be in Psalm chapter 5, as we just read there together. So if you would go ahead and start to turn there. Um, we're all at times placed in physical or emotional circumstances that we feel hopeless, that we feel like we can't go on. We, there's this sense of survival, and I'm imagining these stories you see on TV or you read about how someone was uh, out backpacking or they were out in the wilderness and some accident happened and they were left for dead. And you hear stories after they survive and get back that this one thought got them through, this one thought carried them on. And you may have felt that way uh, on a daily basis, or maybe you've gone for a run, or maybe you're battling some type of uh, long-term illness. In all of these circumstances, there's one, usually one thought that comes to our surface, to the surface of our brains. Whenever the situation is confusing and there's a lot of uh, disorder around and in our minds, usually there is one thing that guides us through that we can hold on to. And there's a lot of good things that can motivate us to get through tough days, tough challenges, family, friends. Maybe it's a race and you just want to finish. You just want to get to the end and say you made it. There's a lot of good ways, but ultimately at the end of the day in our lives on this earth, there is only one thing that we really can find our hope and our refuge in that's motivating for us to continue on. And my prayer today is that we can find that hope in God alone and in nothing else. And it's a timely message, I believe, on, as we embark on this new year. And so if you would, let's, uh, let's pray for God's help this morning. Lord, would you uh, be so kind to us uh, this morning to uh, open our eyes to see uh, that our only hope, our only refuge is in you, God. You're the, the only thing that can give us the motivation, the joy, the excitement to get through each day, God. It's, it's tough, it's challenging, and uh, we, need, we need your help. Uh, so we ask for it this morning, that you would be worshipped as we walk through this text, that you, would, that you would do an amazing, miraculous thing in our hearts, that your truth would find home there. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So my prayer today is that we can find one centric thought to get us through. I hope that we can grow in the fear of God and to receive His sweet fellowship in our lonely hours. We can find a safe refuge we can hope in his blessings. The main point today is that Christians can have confidence in God as our refuge and hope. Christians can have confidence in God as our refuge and hope. And in this psalm, we find the psalmist, most likely David, under the threat of his enemies. It seems they've threatened his very life with their slanderous lies. And here we find David in the morning giving his prayer, his devotion, his allegiance to his God. We find him at the dawn of the day praying. David's prayer for deliverance is driven by his clear awareness of God and his confidence in God's character. In his prayer, David's thoughts and actions are centered on his fear and worship of God. We also find a contrast here with those who do not fear God and do not worship God. 
David places his confidence and his hope in God alone. And as we walk through the psalm today, we're going to learn through each of these five stanzas how to place our hope in God alone. As we walk through, basically each stanza is going to help us. First, we're going to pray in confidence, appeal to God's holiness, appeal to God's love, request for God's justice in the world, and rejoice in God's love for his people. So first, let's pray in confidence as we look at the first three verses. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King, my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord. In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David is asking God to hear his words. Not only is he asking God to hear his words, but he's asking God to hear the words that he can't even formulate. He's not asking God to only hear the nice, structured prayers that that he puts together, but he's asking God to hear the very groanings of a desperate soul. That's what he's asking God to hear. Who, Who else can hear that in this world? Who else can, you know, he's the only one that completely understands, and David is leaning and depending on him. This is not a quiet meditation or a calm conversation, but this is a plea of desperation, from someone being greatly oppressed to someone, the only one, who can save him. David begins to express his feelings and situations to God in this prayer because he knows God understands his situation and God wants to hear from him. David is a king, and he's a king under authority. David refers to God as Lord several times in these verses, and, it's tra- and that's translated Yahweh. This is God's name given to Moses, which is meaning the self-existent one. The one who delivers his people. David also addresses this self-existent deliverer as king. And as we know, kings are supposed to operate in such a way that their subjects under them flourish. And so that's what he is he's asking God. The, 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 the term king here is put here because David is asking God to do something tangible in his life and in his world to produce human flourishing. It's not just some uh, God in the sky, but it's asking for something in reality to happen here. This prayer is not going into a vacuum, but to God, who he believes has the ultimate authority and the ability to stabilize, to protect, and to provide flourishing. Yahweh's trustworthiness as a king is the foundation of David's prayer. And David's prayers is not only to a God and to a king, but he says to my God and to my king. So it's not only that this is the sovereign God, the self-existent one, the only one who can deliver him and the king, but this is his king. This is his God. It's very personal to David. That's why he's getting up in the morning here to pray. David has made it through the night. Considering the enemies mentioned later in this psalm and throughout David's life, the darkness of the night was likely filled with danger and loneliness. David has made it through the night, and in the morning, as the day changes from darkness to light, it brings with it a renewed feeling of hope. And as the day sets out, 
he sets his mind and literally his body toward God. I'm reminded of Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, where it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. David expresses this hope in his watching. He's going to spend the rest of the day watching to see how God will work. He is confident in an answer from his God. The answer may not be as he desires or in the way that he thinks, but he knows God will answer. And as the day starts, he uses his voice to surrender to his Lord, to his King, and to his God. His prayer is an act of humility. He could have got up and did, you know, did some things to prepare for his day. He could have got up and made some plans. But David gets up and humbly surrenders to his God and cries out to his God in confidence. And his whole prayer, as the psalmist prays in these verses and throughout the psalm, he remembers and rehearses the very character of God. David puts his prayer in the context of preparing a sacrifice. Because whatever he is, wherever he is praying, he knows that God is with him and David is completely dependent on his God. David is confident God hears him. He's confident God will act, so he prays. This is a great example for us, a great model for us as we enter into this new year, as we enter into each day when it feels dark and the morning, is, the morning comes, there is a light dawning and we see the challenges of the day ahead. We should start first by focusing our attention, our focus on the Lord. And we can have confidence that he hears us and that he will answer. And so let's watch. Let's spend the rest of the day watching to see how he's going to answer our prayers. We can pray in confidence because we know God hears and our, hears our prayers. And we can watch because we are appealing to his holiness and his love. So let's look at the next verses, appealing to God's holiness. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. In these next few verses, David is appealing to a righteous, holy God. This is in stark contrast to the other gods of, of his day who uh, were not morally superior. They, they were engaged in just the same types of sin, lust, lying as humans were. They were just more powerful and immortal. Uh, but David is appealing to a God who is holy, who is set apart, who is righteous. He is praying to a God who has a holy morally superior character. David is describing a holiness that is defined not by human interpretation, but is defined by God's essential character. And we see in these verses that God is incompatible with evil. There's no evil in God, and where God is, evil cannot be. The word dwell in verse 4 can also mean visit. There's not, a long, there's not a long stay, but a short visit. God can't even visit with sin. It, he, he, it can't be near him. And then we read of these lies here. And when we lie, it's because we're trying to create a narrative 
of ourselves or our world that is not true. We're acting as God, trying to create our own reality. The desire to be God by creating a lie or a false narrative to manipulate the truth will grow to the point that we will be thirsty for the blood of others who get in our way. David's enemies have used their lies to advance their own agenda and mission. See, the bloodthirsty man is not one who has or will commit murder. The bloodthirsty man is one who's not able to receive what the Lord has given him and therefore is willing to do whatever it takes to get his own way. That's the bloodthirsty man. And it's sobering that God hates this. God is so pure and holy that a boastful person cannot even stand before him. He hates evildoers, and he will destroy anyone who speaks a lie. This is a God who is not going to turn the other way, but will execute justice as it is due. As we read these verses, we might be recalling God's mercy and grace and wonder, how can this be? How can this be hate? And the simplest answer that I can give you is God is not like us. Because of his holiness, he can perfectly hold love, justice, and mercy in complete unity at all times. He is completely, that's what makes him holy, is that he is able to do that. God's holiness allows him to have holy love and holy justice at the same time. And so when we see and experience and feel the evil effects of sin in the world and the brokenness, and when we are afflicted, we should appeal to God's holiness. David made it through the trial of the night knowing this day was likely going to bring more, and he reminds himself that God will not tolerate evil, so he appeals to God's holiness. David also knows that he is not without sin himself, so he does not find God. So, so, but how can he find God as a refuge and a hope? He appeals to God's love. In verse 7 through 8, what, a wonderful, what wonderful verses here. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lord, lead me. In your righteousness, because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. This is a humble dependence on God, not a declaration of self-righteousness. He's reviewing, he's reminding, he's assuring himself of God's love. David knows that he has faults, that there's no way that he can enter into God's presence, that he can enter into God's temple. He knows that is not possible, that he is just as wicked as these men. And that's why even at the end of this section, he prays to be led in the ways of righteousness because he's afraid that he might stumble. He's afraid that he might enter into their boastfulness, into their lies, trying to believe his own way. So he, here he's pleading for God's steadfast love on his own soul, on his own, on his own life. This steadfast love is God's desire from the beginning of time and throughout all history to love and bless his creation. That is God's steadfast love. From the beginning of time, throughout all creation, throughout all the world to bless his creation. That is his steadfast love. David knows that God hates wickedness, but David appeals to God's abundant love. And it is through this abundance of the steadfast love of God that David can enter the house of God. 
David is confident that God has more than enough love to allow him to enter. David's aware that since God cannot even visit with sin, he does not deserve to dwell with God or enter his house. David confidently claims his hope to enter the very presence of God, while the wicked cannot hope to even visit this God. No evil will dwell with God, but David enters his house. And then David says here that he bows down in reverent surrender and worship to his holy God. David worships no matter if he's near the house of God or in the house of God. David's confidence is not limited by his geographical location or his circumstance. In fact, the physical house of God would not have even been built yet. It's possible this was added later by the Israelites or David is imagining the future. Either way, despite his circumstances or his location, David literally sets his body and also his mind to the symbol of God's fellowship, the temple. The boastful will not stand before God, but David will bow down in fear toward the holy temple, knowing that he is completely dependent on God for life and blessing. Do you see the contrast here? God hates wickedness, but David is experiencing his abundant love. God cannot dwell with the evil, but David is entering into his presence. God will not allow the boastful to stand, but David is worshiping this God. How does David have this confidence in God as a refuge and as a hope? The holiness of God presents each of us with our greatest problem and our greatest hope. Our greatest problem is the justice of God we rightly deserve because of our sin. But our greatest hope is the love of God. The confidence David has in God has been fully revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, specifically at the cross, took the full justice of God, displaying the full love of God, to give us a, a rightful place to enter into His presence. This is our God. This is His holiness and His love where it meets at the cross. Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, he, David is so confident it's, it's not as if he is trying to uh, do certain things, as he has to do the sacrifice, he has to do a certain seance or a certain prayer to get into God's holiness. He is confident in, the, in God. He is confident that he can enter into God's presence because God is offering his abundant, steadfast love to him. David is bowing in worship and surrender to this God. That's the difference here between the wicked and, and David. And I hope that we can find our place in those that are bowing in, in surrender and worship to this God and not trying to uh, create our own way. It's through the steadfast love of God in Jesus we can enter His presence and find refuge and hope. Jesus has done what we could never do by living a perfect life and taking all the justice that we deserve because of our sin. He now invites us not only into His presence, but He places His presence in us by the Holy Spirit. So wherever we go, 
David was directing his body toward the temple, but wherever we go, we have the Spirit with us. We are invited into the very presence of God. And in fact, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now. He is in the holies of holies, the spiritual, the heavenly temple. He is there. And because we have the Holy Spirit with us, it's as if we are there too, because we have been united with Him. This is God's abundant love. This is amazing that we get to experience this and that we can hope in this. This is our refuge through this life. This is our only hope in this life. And David knows that there's going to be challenges. David knows there's going to be struggles. It's not as if the day dawns. It's not as if the new year starts over and then like our life is going to be fixed, right? I mean, we joke about that, but sometimes in our house, we, Lauren and I, we joke like, Oh, yeah, the New Year's here, so our life is going to be perfect now. And it's like, because <laughs> all the different habits and the different routines and the different intentions or goals that you set, everything's going to be great. And David knows there, there is a hope. I, I'm, not, I'm not totally negating the fact that there is a certain freshness to a new day, <clears throat> excuse me, to a new day or to a new year. But David is, is humbling himself at the beginning of this day to surrender to God and ask for God's help because he knows that God is the only one who got him through the night and he's the only one that can get him through this next day. And so we read here that he prays for God to lead him. After appealing to God's love, he then asks God to lead him. We all need to be led in, some, in so many ways, but what areas do we need to be led in more than the righteousness of the Lord? Notice David continues God-centered thoughts and prayers. This is not what you think is righteousness or what I think is righteousness, but this is the righteousness of the Lord. He is asking to be led because his enemies make it hard, and he's asking to be led because he could easily go the way of the wicked. It can feel as if we are surrounded with evil from within and evil from without, and we need a clear way. When we see When we see sin around us, when we experience and feel the effects of sin, we should appeal to God's holiness. We should appeal to God's love. David uses his mouth and his body in worship and anticipates refuge and hope in God. But we will see in the next verses, his enemies have used their mouth and their bodies to speak lies and murder. And they can only anticipate rejection and destruction. Verse 9 through 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. The wicked spoken of here takes on a, the, the wickedness spoken of before takes on a specific form here. And even malicious false accusations and lies. There is a repeated reference to the organ that produces words, mouth, throat, tongue. Nothing, they say, can be trusted. What a vivid image of the destructiveness of the mouth. In fact, it leads to the grave. Their mouth makes a slippery slope, a slippery path straight to the grave, to death, to utter destruction. 
What is interesting is Paul uses this verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 13. And in verse 10 through 12, we read that no one seeks for God and all have turned to their own way. No one does good. Then in verse 13, Paul quotes part of this psalm. See, this lie here in the Psalms and in Romans, and it's been here since the beginning of time, and it's primarily about God. That we can be our own God. That we do not need Him and are better off without Him. Was that not the lie in the garden? Is that not the lie that we are tempted with every day? That's the lie here. This is no we little lie. This is the lie. This is the lie. And even as the Psalms, though, reads as if there are multiple enemies here, described using plural pronouns, they seem to share one mouth, one throat, and one tongue. There are multiple enemies here, but they are acting in union. The lie is that we can and should be God. The word the world around us, the devil and the flesh within us act out of this lie that we can be our own gods. We need to seek God as our counselor. But David, David has sought God as his counselor, but the wicked have sought their own counselors. David specifically asked God for justice. David is not asking to be the, on the winning side as if this was a baseball game. David is asking for God's righteousness, justice to be dealt against those who desire to kill him, those who are, who are rebels against God. David is asking for an appropriate verdict for their sin. David is desiring what God desires. But even with the abundance of transgressions, they have the opportunity to humble themselves in the fear of God, to receive his refuge and hope but they have chosen the lie. Despite the presence of sin in the world that can surround us, we can have confidence God will bring justice and we can rejoice in God's love for his people. Let's turn to the last few verses as we rejoice in God's love for his people. Let them all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. For those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. David has been describing the end of, of those that rebel against God, destruction. But here he describes those who have found their refuge and their hope in God. They receive from God enduring, everlasting joy and protection. This refuge can can imagine, you can imagine fleeing a place of, to a place of security and protection in a time of trouble. But this is not just a temporary refuge from a storm, but, a, but confidence in God for our current refuge and hope as well as our everlasting refuge and hope. This is an absolute dependence and confidence in God. What better refuge can you find? What better hope can you find? There's no greater refuge. There's no greater hope. There's no fellowship like this. No refuge can we find. No hope can we find. No one can penetrate his refuge. And no one can give us a better hope. We can have confidence in our God to provide this refuge and hope. Christians in God as our refuge and hope. We can have confidence in him.
The psalmist starts with David alone, crying to God, but it ends with his people of God praising him together. As the new year dawns, let's place our confidence that God will be our refuge and our hope, and let's lift our voices together as we sing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your abundance of steadfast love, God. We, we have no hope. We have no confidence in our goals, in our routines, in our intentions for this year. Oh, Lord, but we can have so much confidence and so much joy in you. Help us this morning, God. Uh, place our hope and our confidence in you. May we sing, may we rejoice with you this morning. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, that gives us assurance of your victory, gives us assurance of your abundant, steadfast love for us, that we can enter into your presence. What glory, God, we, that has been given to us. We ask this in your name. Amen.